twice-born people, born-again people, obey, not because the law is our master, but because Jesus Christ is our husband, and we are in love with him, and out of a heart of gratitude that he has rescued us, we obey him. Welcome to another week of Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've moved into chapter 7 in our study of the book of Romans, and in a message entitled, Released from the Law, we have so far seen the Apostle Paul explain that even good moral people who seek to obey God's laws are still tainted with the fallen state of unrighteousness apart from faith alone in Jesus Christ. To drive home this point, Pastor Brogy begins today talking about fresh eggs versus rotten eggs. Years ago, I made a beautiful omelet, and I took these brand new eggs, and I needed one more. I like four egg omelets. I know that's not good for your cholesterol, but I took one off the rack, and I mixed them all together. And when I put it in my mouth, it was horrible because there was one bad egg mixed in with three good eggs. In any works that you do in your unsaved state, you can only do out of your fallen state. And so your righteous deeds, not your best deeds, but your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. It's tainted with sin. How good must you be to go to heaven? Perfect. You need a perfect righteousness. And any good you do tainted with the sins we do disqualifies that. That's why James can say in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Do you know what that means? In the context, James is dealing with people who thought that showing partiality, prejudice between rich and poor was just a small thing. That in comparison to adultery or murder, it was no thing. And, and James says, listen, even the smallest infraction of the law is like you broke every single commandment in the eyes of a holy God. And so in Scripture, it's not the amount of sin that condemns you. It is the fact of sin. And so while the law says produce perfection, verse 4 says you also were made to die to the law, through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So because you cannot keep the law perfectly, because the law says produce perfection, the reality of it is, is all you can do is produce fruit for death. But when you come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you come and say, Lord Jesus, I bow before you and I admit I am a bankrupt sinner and I trust the merits of your cross, then God clothes you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you by your death with him and your identification with him are now released from the law in terms of it as being a basis for acceptance. You see, before we we're saved, we we're dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. We're like machines, and that a machine cannot produce an apple or an orange or a strawberry or a grapefruit. Now, a machine can make grapefruit juice, but it cannot produce grapefruits. But why? Because a machine has no life in itself. And so machines can do all kinds of things to fruit, but cannot actually make fruit. And you can go through all the machine-like ceremonies and religious loops and, 
and all the things that you try to do to please God, but it's death-like fruit. It cannot produce spiritual life. Look at verse 6. But now, now having been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Let me see if I can illustrate what I'm trying to say. Imagine a woman who is married to a, to a man that she thinks is the most wonderful, perfect man who has ever lived on the face of the earth. We're going to call him Mr. Law. Because Mr. Law is indeed in absolute reality perfect. Now, how many of you think you are married to a man who is absolutely perfect, who's never done anything wrong, who is just the most wonderful person on the planet? Would you raise your hands? Okay, Audrey, you can put your hand down. That's all right. <laughs> now, how many of you think, how many of you think that your man thinks he's perfect? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> now, here's Mr. Law. And Mr. Law does everything right. He dots every I. He crosses every T. Mr. Law is perfect. And he says, look, girls, I've got the perfect man. He's wonderful. But after a while, she finds out that being married to a perfect man is not that much fun. He says to her, honey, now while I'm at work today, I want you to do this, 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 and this. And I don't want you to do this, 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 and this. And everything he tells her to do and not to do is absolutely right. She says, yes, sweetheart, you'll be so proud of me when you come home. And she comes, he comes home, and she has tried so hard, but she has failed. She didn't do everything that she, he was asked, she was asked to do, and she did some things that she was not supposed to do. And so Mr. Law criticizes her and scolds her, and she's in tears. And she says, oh, honey, I love you so much. Please, please, please just give me another chance. He leaves for work the next day. And it's the same story, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And after a while, she says, I hate that guy. I thought I loved him. I can't stand him. But he's perfect. There's nothing, absolutely nothing she can blame him with. But she hates him so much. She wants to divorce him so bad she can taste it. But she knows that she cannot divorce him. Because she knows intuitively that she is bound to Mr. Law just as long as he lives. So she thinks, oh, one of these days he's going to die. I'll just stick it out. But the older he gets, the stronger he gets. He has an iron constitution, and Mr. Law is not going to die. She thinks, well, maybe I'll knock him off. But till heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He's not going to die. She can't kill him. He, he's perfect. He just lives on and on and on and on and on. She reasons why well, I can't get a divorce from him. And he can't die. What am I going to do? Now, let me tell you parenthetically, while this relationship is going on, she has her eyes on another man. Let's call him Mr. Love. And she's tired of being married to Mr. To law, and she wished she was married to Mr. Love because she's seen Mr. Love. And he's so kind and tender and compassionate and understanding. She says, oh, that's the kind of man I should have married to begin with. Then it hits her. There's only two ways out of a marriage. He must die or I must die. 
So since Mr. Law can't die, I must die, and if I die, he won't have any control over me anymore. So she just voluntarily dies. She lays down her life, and she takes death. You say, that's the end of the story, right? No, this is a rather strange story with a fantastic ending. You see, Mr. Love has been watching this woman. And Mr. Love would like to be married to this woman. But Mr. Love can't be married to this woman as long as she's married to Mr. Law. But now that she has died, Mr. Love does something very wonderful. He brings her back to life. He gives her his life. He has power to give her life. And since she has died, she's no longer married to Mr. Law, but now the one who gave her life, she is married to Mr. Love. And she wakes up and she says, oh, at last I'm free. I'm married to Mr. Love. How wonderful. The next day before Mr. Love goes to work, before he leaves, he says, Mr. Law said to go one mile, but I say to go two. And Mr. Love lays on her commandment after commandment after commandment after commandment. And it's much harder living under Mr. Love than it was under Mr. Law. And she says, what am I going to do? But soon she learns that Mr. Love, who gave her life, is willing to live his life in and through her. And as we will come to the eighth chapter, she will discover that Mr. Love is fantastically rich. He says, you can have whatever you want, anything you want, just write a check and it is yours. You say, Pastor, that's a silly, little, little ridiculous story. Is it? That is exactly what Christ Jesus did for us. Mr. Law, of course, is the law of God, and Mr. Love, of course, is the Lord Jesus. Look again at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Notice the law does not die, but we died because when Jesus died, we died with him. That's why I told you the identification truths of chapter 5 were so important for us to get so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. See, when you were saved, understand that you became dead to the requirements of the law through the death of the Lord Jesus so that you might be joined. This word joined in verse 4 is the same word used in verse 3 in the marriage illustration that some of your text translates marriage. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that we might be joined, or you might say, be married to another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all that Mr. Love asks us to do, he is willing to do in and through us when we admit the truths of verses 14 through 25 that will we come to in a few weeks when we will say, I can't, it's impossible, but he can and he must do it through me. Now look at verse 5. For while we're in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear and underline the last three words of this verse, fruit for death. What a contrast between grace and legalism. In our unsaved state, our righteous deeds, not our worst deeds, but our best deeds are as filthy rags because the best things we can do have been polluted by sin. And so all we could produce was fruit for death. But in our saved condition, we can produce fruit for life, fruit for God. 
Verse 4 says, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So Paul instructs us in verse 6, he can say, but now we've been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Please note that having been released from the law does not mean you can do whatever you want. And the paragraph that follows that we will study next week, he will explain to the libertine, to the antinomian, that we are free from the law in the sense of our obligation to keep it in terms of being accepted before God. But understand, but now that we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound. When did that happen? When you get saved, why did it happen? So that we might serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the latter. Now, let me give you a sneak preview. Turn over a page in your Bibles to Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 1. We'll come to it and we'll explain it in detail when we get there, but let me just remind you what he's speaking of here. Look at 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer condemned if we are in Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because there is one who took condemnation for us. Uh, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Father who had never sinned, made, uh, the Father who, excuse me, the Father made Christ who never sinned to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we could become God's righteousness. If this watch is Carl Brogy and this Bible is Christ, when I received Christ as my Savior, I was put in Christ. He gave me his righteousness. And the moment I was put in Christ, instantaneously, the Bible teaches, God the Holy Spirit was put in me. Why? That I might no longer serve in oldness of letter, but in newness of life. That's the promise. God wants you to serve out of the power of the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit. Now, everyone in this room, is either in Christ or out of Christ. There is no in-between state. I hope you understand that. You're not 50% saved or 75% saved. You're either clothed in God's righteousness, eternally forgiven, and if Christ comes in the next minute in heaven, or you will be lost for all of eternity. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life, we'll talk about what that is, in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We'll talk about what that is. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, how did he do it? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And why did he do that? So that we could live like a bunch of rebels? No, verse four, so that. The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, before we leave these verses, let's ask a question. Is the law of God still binding on the Christian? And the answer, as we will see, is both yes and no. Yes, in the sense that as Christians, our freedom is not freedom to sin, but freedom to obey. He has already underscored that we are to be slaves to righteousness but know in the sense as a means to being accepted before God. Uh, we are no longer accepted on that basis. In, know in the sense in terms of our motive. 
Let's think through the means and the motive for just a second, and he's going to unfold it, but I want to introduce you to the thought today. In terms of motive, the average non-Christian thinks, I work to earn. I keep the commandments to be accepted. I am doing certain things to earn my way to heaven. But once a person gets saved, he says, no, because I'm going to heaven, this is why I obey. I'm not obeying to be accepted. I'm obeying because I am accepted. And so twice-born people, born-again people, obey not because the law is our master, but because Jesus Christ is our husband and we are in love with him and out of a heart of gratitude that he has rescued us, we obey him. And that's what Paul will tell Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation, it teaches those who believe, us who believe, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live righteously and godly in the present age. So we have a new motive. But not only do we have a new motive, as he will unfold in the chapters to come, we have a new means. God didn't leave you as an orphan this morning. The Spirit of Christ has come to implant his life in you, and he wants you to learn how it is that he can live his life through you. Now, this is not a new idea. Let me close with this. Go to the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. If you're new to the Bible, find Psalms dead center and turn to the right and you will soon find Jeremiah. Jeremiah deals with Jewish people. He is dealing with a future time in the life of the people of Israel when God will bring them to faith in Jesus as Messiah. We will study this in Romans 9 through 11. He came to his own, his own received him not, John wrote. For the most part, when Jesus came to the Jewish people, they did not embrace him as Messiah. Why? We will learn the answer to that in Romans 10. But there was always a remnant, and there is a remnant today. There's over 100,000 believing Messianic Jews in this country alone who believe Jesus is their personal Savior. But what has happened now in remnant form is going to happen in a wholesale way, according to Jeremiah 30 and 31. When will it happen? During what chapter 30 calls the time of Jacob's trouble, what the New Testament calls the great tribulation period. Now, did you find 31? Look at verse 31. Behold, days are coming, God says, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Now stop right there for a second. Where else do you hear the phrase new covenant? You say, well, we, we hear that every time we celebrate the Lord's table. That's right. Listen to Matthew 26. Jesus said, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Please note, there's a connection, as we'll see in a moment, just as in Jeremiah, with this covenant 
in forgiveness of sins. I don't want you to miss that. Now, Paul, he'll say it in these ways. He gives an expanded portion of how Jesus originally said it. He said, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so the new covenant was enacted with the death of the Lord Jesus. If you want to be real technical, your New Testament, your New Covenant, the New Deal doesn't start in Matthew 1.1. It starts in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50 when Jesus sheds his blood on the cross. Understand the word testament and the word covenant, diatheke, are identical terms in Scripture. Now look at verse 33. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. What are you going to do? I will put my, my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why not? For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And by the way, this is the great blessing of the new covenant that we are able to experience intimacy with God on a level that no old covenant saint ever knew. How so? For, here's the reason, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Until in time and space, there on Golgotha, Jesus literally, actually, physically bled and made the payment for sin. The new covenant could not be experienced. But through the forgiveness that he provided, he now can put the Spirit of God to live in us. Now turn over a few pages to Ezekiel, to the right. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Go to chapter 36, or just listen. Again, he's looking down the corridors of time. And while indeed this is a future fulfillment, Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 says it is being fulfilled for any Gentile and any Jew who today receives Jesus as Lord. But notice again this new covenant, Ezekiel 36, 26. Moreover, I will give you, God says, a new heart. That's what you need. You need a new heart to be different. I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the blessing of the new covenant and this is what Romans 7 is referring to when it says that we can now serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And yet some Christians live like the man who bought a brand new automobile. Oh, and he's proud that he has it, but he doesn't know he has an engine. And he shows his friends and he says, will you look at this? Look at the paint job. Look at the metallic head pops. Would you look at those leather seats? air-conditioned and heated no less and will you check out this navigational system and all the bells and whistles in this car and he shows it and he's so proud of it and then he says well I'll see you later and he starts pushing it oh he's proud of it but inwardly secretly he wishes in one sense that he didn't have to push it and he's so tired oh every once in a while he finds a hill and he has an emotional experience and he glides down the hill but he's like a lot of Christian people 
Oh, I am so glad that salvation is mine, that God has rescued me from the pit of hell and planted my feet on solid ground, that I'm bound for glory. And I'm so glad I am a member of Community Bible Church and that there's no liberalism, that they represent orthodoxy and no doctrinal compromise. But there's no victory in your life. And inwardly, you're saying, oh, this Christian life is so difficult. And there are many Christians like that. And the way they often respond is they become legalistic. And sometimes they create their own list of do's and don'ts. And if your do's and don'ts don't match their do's and don'ts, then it makes them feel good about themselves because they're better than you. Or sometimes they even have good do's and don'ts right out of the Scripture itself, but because they are trying to do it in their own energy and then instead of the power of the Spirit of God, they're burned out. You know what burned out Christians are? They're people who aren't walking in the Spirit. It's sad because there's so many like that. And then they will often become unloving and critical and they'll blame you instead of looking in the mirror themselves. Now I know we've talked about a lot of deep theology and we're just beginning to unfold it today. And just take what you've learned today and go home and meditate and think about what we've talked about. But let me just say this. You can't even begin to change until you are a twice-born person. You must, three times over, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. It is impossible to grow and change until you have had a birth from above. And if you've never received Christ, I want to tell you, God will not only save you, but he will commit himself to forming the image of Jesus Christ in you if you will let, you, let him. And he will never, ever, ever divorce you even with all of your faults. But this life is lived from the inside out. But you must first receive Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I wonder, has that ever happened to you? Do you know that you know that you know that heaven is your home, that you've been saved, that the Spirit bears witness to your spirit that you are a child of God? If not, my friend, you can be saved today because heaven is not earned. It's a gift that is received based on the merits of Christ's death and resurrection. And so God can promise whoever will call upon Jesus' name, he will save would you say today, God, I am an unrighteous sinner worthy of hell, a rebel at heart. But I come today to the Lord Jesus. And I trust that my sin that is so offensive that you will forgive it through the blood of his cross and that you will begin to change my life. I trust you, Lord Jesus, to save me even now. Help someone, Holy Spirit of God, to do that today. And help them never to be ashamed of it. And help us who have already met you in the days and weeks ahead and this day of gross compromise in the body of Christ. Help us to soak our minds in Holy Scripture, to renew them, and to learn what it means to walk in the Spirit in newness of life. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. To listen again to today's message in its entirety, why not use the new Search the Scriptures app for Android and Apple devices? 
Just search the Google Marketplace or iTunes Store for Search the Scriptures with Dr. Carl Brogy. You can also listen at our website, searchthescriptures.org, as well as call 877-787-7478 to order a CD or DVD copy. More and more people are using Twitter to follow people. And if you tweet, be sure to follow at CJ to get insights from Pastor Carl. That Twitter address again is at CJ B-R-O-G-G-I. Tomorrow we begin a message entitled, License to Sin? Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>